Uh, thank you very much for the welcome. Can you hear me at the back? Great. Um, very happy to be here, though in sad circumstances, as James pointed out. Tony was a dear friend and comrade for many years, and I've lost count of the number of times we shared platforms uh, over the last 20 years campaigning against wars and for the extension of democracy. Uh, and I'm sure that he would be of the opinion that don't mourn him too much but carry on the struggle, carry on organizing because lots of things have yet to be accomplished and done, especially in these bad times. Now, I was very pleased to be asked by the Radical Independence Campaign to come and speak on this subject because it's been close to my heart for many, many years. Uh, a short explanation of this before I get on to the main theme is that when I was very young, uh, between the ages of 10 and 12, lived in Lahore, went to school there, my parents would often drag me off to a terribly bourgeois and awful event called the Lahore Horseshoe, uh, which, as its name suggests, uh, was uh, a celebration of horse riding and tent pegging and polo and various other things associated with such activities. The high point of it for me and many of my friends who likewise had been dragged there by their parents were when suddenly in the intervals between the boring events a whole battalion of Punjabi soldiers wearing kilts and carrying bagpipes would suddenly <coughs> suddenly take over the field. And so all the tunes which you are familiar with, we were familiar with as well. Uh, and, of course, we didn't ask those Punjabis uh, showing off their legs to the bourgeoisie of the town uh, what they wore under their kilts, but I'm sure the reply would have been very upfront. Um, and it's... The, the sec then when I came to university to study in this country in 63, um, I ran into three people at different times, one for a very short time, who interested me in the idea of Scottish independence. He had come to speak there, and I was sitting next to him during dinner, and his name was Hugh McDermott. And uh, it was a very nice, if slightly inebriated, evening. <clears throat> but I certainly picked up a, a, a great deal from him. And the other person was Neil McCormick, who some of you will know. Very serious, very earnest, very intelligent, very honest guy. And the third guy with whom I didn't have too many dealings, but again one learned something from him, was James Douglas Hamilton, <laughs> who I feel should make up for what his forebears did and come out for independence, but <laughs> <coughs> probably won't. So, why... I ask myself, is Scottish independence today important 
not just for Scotland, but important for the rest of what goes by the name of the United Kingdom as well. Because in Scotland, you naturally think of it as improving conditions here on many levels, and you're right, it will. And I think this is not the last chance, but a very big opportunity for the Scottish people to decide to go it alone. And by alone, it doesn't mean that, you know, you're floating in a tiny vessel on the Atlantic Ocean, because no one is ever alone these days in that sense which is spoken about by some of the detractors, or you'll become parochial, you'll be isolated, etc., if you look within the European Union, there are a number of countries with a population which is less than that of Scotland. And if you look outside the European Union, countries that have not joined the European Union, the same can be said. So the idea of parochialism uh, doesn't, uh, you know, it's, it's not a serious argument at all. The serious argument is that this new form of nationalism and a desire for independence does not have attached to it, as far as the overwhelming majority of its supporters are concerned, anything remotely resembling purity, racism, blood, soil, etc. It is an incredibly hybrid, or should I say mongrelized movement in the best sense of that word, which is why it appeals. There is no question here of privileging any particular uh, group within Scotland. So all the arguments and the cartoons in the London press are really besides the point and don't have no understanding of what uh, Scotland could be. I first visited Scotland in 1967 to do actually two big meetings on the Vietnam War, once in Edinburgh, one in Edinburgh and the other in Glasgow. And I have to say to you that what was made a huge difference, because I'd been speaking all over England as well, what was very def defining for me about Scotland, apart from the fact that I recognized as an outsider in the country as a whole that this was a country, it wasn't just a different place, it was a different country, though it was not known as such, but it was a nation. But what the other factor that, of course, interested me was that at the anti-Vietnam War meetings, there was a very large representation from the Scottish working class. Trade union activists, working class people, some trade union leaders like the late Lawrence Daly were very heavily involved in this movement, which was a bit different from in England where we had to struggle and fight to get them onto our side, to put it bluntly. So for me, the first experience I had of Scotland was its internationalism. So I have never thought of this part of these islands as something which was different. Now, it's known, of course, that home rule for Scotland was for a long, long time part and parcel of the program of the British Labour Party. That's what they said they believed in. They produced early leaders of the Scottish Labour Party. 
came from this part of the country. Uh, home rule was taken for granted. The time when it went into decline, and this of course is of interest, is with the election of the Labour government of 1945, where I think large numbers of people wanted change, wanted reforms, <clears throat> wanted an end to the depression, and they got it by and large. That the Attlee program under the Labour Party of 1945, the most radical in the history of the Labour Party, uh, was something that did unite the working class and did unite people from the middle classes as well. Why? Because it created a new order, if you like, a new social order and cre uh, uh, creating a welfare state where certain things were taken for granted. Free health, free education, subsidized housing, etc., etc. And that compact actually acted as a barrier in some ways to the emergence of a national mood. And that is why I've always felt that for the people of Scotland, as far as I know and as far as I've studied and from my numerous visits to this part of the country, is not exclusively bound up with identity. And the early nationalist movement made a huge mistake in imagining that it was and imagining that because of this, automatically, slowly, incrementally, people would reach nationhood. But that was not the case, and understandably so. So the new nationalist mood that arose, the most recent wave of it, which has put the SNP in, par in the uh, Scottish Parliament, was directly related to the ravages of the Thatcher years, the dismantling of the welfare state, the creation <clears throat> of uh, a new system, sometimes called neoliberalism, uh, under which private enterprise was encouraged to penetrate and violate the sanctity of every public institution. And the result has been a disaster for the whole country, not just Scotland. Scotland suffered more. But do not imagine that it's been better for most of the people who live in England, apart from a tiny, tiny uh, layer of the population in the southeast, London and its surrounds. And even there, it's not, uh, uh, I mean, the housing situation is a disaster. The combination of Thatcher and Blair, of course, produced a very effective poison. And it was the realization, Scotland in particular, which had been a stronghold of laborism for many a decade, that this new labor operation carried out by Blair and Brown was in fact part of the problem. It wasn't part of the solution. And that, I think, saw the hemorrhaging of labor support and labor votes in Scotland, that people realized they were not what they used to be. They were not even going to stand up for what they had first introduced in 1945, that they had broken 
with the 45 consensus and had become part of the Thatcherite consensus. And they had, and they boasted about it, all their leaders. If you now go back and see, it's not that they said they were going to give any different. They gave what they promised, by and large. That's the difference. And people were taken in, or people explained it and said, oh, well, they have to say these things to get into power. I remember this argument so well. But, you know, if you say, in other words, the, 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 the political side of it is the only way you can come into power is by telling lies, which may or may not be true. It probably is to a certain extent any for everyone. But to say that this is the only way we can come into power is by saying we are not going to even tinker with Thatcherism is grotesque. They, of course, they didn't just say that. They would boast, if you look at the book Mendelssohn wrote, backed by Blair, that we are going to make it easy to get rich. Nothing wrong with that. We want people to feel easy with that. And the imposition of this system... In, 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 in the country has led us to where we are today. And of course, all this while, whereas within the United, uh, within uh, England, opposition virtually disappeared, at the moment it's incredibly depressing living in England. I have to tell you that, because you feel you're living in a land without any opposition. The party system in Westminster the media more and more controlled and dominated by the party system and by the party in power. I mean, the most cynical thing was the way in which the BBC was curbed, wrapped on the knuckles for having discussions on the Iraq war. And in order to stop this, they set up this phony commission under Hutton the Hutton Tribunal, whose only aim was to neuter the BBC. And interestingly, and cynically, and not surprisingly, Blair advised Murdoch and his gang to do the same, as came out in the press, that he told Rebecca Brooks, who's a special chum of his, um, that, you know, what I would suggest is that within your own organization, you should set up a Hutton-style tribunal just to clear the air means shameless and treating people as if they were imbeciles and fools. You can say this in public and people will carry on believing. But in any event, by and large, in terms of political opposition, it was very limited. In Scotland, this was not the case. In Scotland, you had the emergence of a national nationalist current with very strong social democratic elements inside it and you had an emergence on the left of it initially of the Scottish Socialist Party now of the Radical Independence Campaign and it's a much much livelier place to be in than anywhere else on these aisles at the present time now this is why <clears throat> the referendum becomes a defining feature a defining feature for Scotland for reasons you all know, that it will create a new mood, reignite hope, and politicize people. 
even more. They will feel that it, it is worth getting involved, getting active, discuss, launching debates. And precisely because the country will be much smaller, democracy could become a much more vital factor in governing people's uh, uh, lives than it is at the moment. Now, of course, the key question which is immediately raised is, so you have an independent space, what is going to be put in that space? Here, there is everything to play for, in my opinion. Unless you have that independent space, the debate is not unimportant, <clears throat> but a bit, it's not concrete either. It's a bit meaningless. Once you have that space, a debate of what to put inside it becomes extremely important. And there are models, not that any of these models are perfect models, but they exist. The notion, for in, by the way, before I carry on on this, that we can have a socially strong and a socially just Scotland and at the same time a traditional neoliberal economy does not work because the neoliberal economy is what creates a Scotland which is not socially just as we can see in Scotland today I mean leaving aside the fact that the half the land of this nation is still under private ownership which is I think the highest in the world probably and that land could be released by an independent Scottish government for more beneficial purposes than being owned by, uh, let's not name them. <laughs> we all know how they got there. <clears throat> behind every big landed family, I promise you that, and it's not just in Scotland, behind every big landed family or large manufacturing estates, there is a crime. <laughs> Think about it. <laughs> Uh, so this is a dilemma which can't be ignored. And if it could be ignored in the days of the Celtic Tigers and the Irish economy, and, oh, we'll be part of the new sort of wonderful neoliberal world, after the Wall Street crash of 2008, that doesn't make any sense at all. The system is in deep crisis. It is in deep crisis uh, the crisis has been used by governments all over Europe to push through austerity measures, to further reduce public expenditure, to punish workers. The, it, the people who are being punished are those at the bottom of the list. Whereas at the same time, I don't need to go into this because all of you lived through it. When the co-op movement pays this joker who was trying to run it millions each year, you have to ask what the hell is going on? Is there no control even within the co-op movement? It's, the fact is that the culture has completely changed and they feel that it's their right to demand this sort of money which is obscene given the level of unemployment given what is happening in the social welfare uh, of the country as a whole, it's utterly obscene and so for me 
I, you know, if I lived here, I would vote for Scottish independence without thinking twice, because I think that is the way forward. But having voted for it, I would then, especially if the vote was successful, begin to argue for change, real meaningful change, and say, let Scotland be a model even within the, the, the community of European states, inside or outside. Let it say that there are certain elementary things that should not be handed over to privatizers because they make profits from it and people shouldn't be allowed to profit from people's health. That is what we have been fighting for for years. Why should the big pharmaceuticals and the private hospitals be allowed to make a huge profit from people's health? And that is what the way things are going in the health service. Increasingly, it will become a two-tier health service. One half pays and the others will get treatment when it's possible to provide it. Lots and lots of doctors uh, have written about it, especially Alison Pollock, who used to be at this university, who wrote NHSPLC, one of the most searing indictments of what the Tories and New Labour are doing to the health service. So that, that has to change, and it can be done. It is not the case that there is not, not enough money. That is an argument I've never accepted. Ask yourselves, how come that every time they go to fight a war which costs billions and billions and keep their troops in Iraq and Afghanistan for as long as they have done or did in the case of Iraq, there is no problem with finding money. But there's always a problem when you ask, about more money for health, more money for education, more money for the people who work in these jobs, doing something which is absolute, then they can't find the money and say it's utopian to demand the money. But it's not utopian to demand the money when they're fighting wars. So the money is there, it's being misspent. It's being misspent and it's being not collected either by letting off huge multinational corporations who don't pay a penny, virtually, in corporation tax. They don't do it. And they threaten. Oh, well, if, if, you, uh, if you force us to pay tax, uh, we leave and go somewhere else, somewhere else uh, where no one asks us to do this. And the, the, the governments of the day say, oh, no, we can't allow you to do that, and there's a nod and a wink. Or with this whole fight over immigration and asylum seekers, money again counts. If you can put in a million or two million, you can buy a British passport. I'm not kidding. That's the price going. That's the going price. Of course, it doesn't mean anything now because they've now passed a law saying unless you actually, uh, if uh, anyone who's a naturalized citizen can be chucked out whenever the Home Secretary wants with the aid of the intelligence agencies. That's a law. So naturalized citizens in the United Kingdom at the moment technically can be turfed out. <clears throat> so on a personal level, I'd rather you became independent quickly. <laughs> Um, an independent Scotland linked either to the European Union in some capacity, I don't know, or to some of the Scandinavian states who have problems 
but who are still doing better, especially Norway, which I visit regularly. And the way the Norwegians have used their oil wealth, they have never allowed their oil to be privatized. Start Oil, the Norwegian oil company, maintains its oil. It has used a lot of the profits from that oil to invest in safe investments, and these investments fund the social welfare state in Norway. That is one lesson that could be learned. Much better than Anglo-globalization, uh, as they call it. And the tragedy is that the Labour Party in Scotland and its members of parliament and its hangers-on and its ideologues have bought into this whole Thatcherite myth. And even now, after the scale of the crisis, they won't look back. They can't look back because they were partially responsible for it. Gordon Brown was the main defender of this system. Blair was more keen on wars, and Brown managed the economy. I mean, you know, a dual disaster. <laughs> and now they're telling us that don't break from the system, but what has the system done? And the contradictions it exposed are there to see. For the last 20 years, 25 years, we've been told the state is bad, the state shouldn't intervene, <clears throat> the free market is perfect, the market will settle all its problems. You people who say that the state has any role to play in the modern world are dinosaurs or stegosaurs or whatever, uh, and you live in the past. The minute the crisis hits <clears throat> and the bubble of the financialized economy bursts, what do they do, the Wall Street firms and their friends in Europe? They fall on their knees before the state and say, state, please help us. And every single government, from Obama to the governments uh, in, in, in the European countries, pay out billions of taxpayers' money to save these banks. So what would they have done without the state? So the state is used to aid <clears throat> the most regressive reactionary form of capitalism, but it can't be used to bail out the poor anymore. Because that's not the world we live in. And it's on these levels, in a smaller country like Scotland, with a government committed to the welfare of this nation, Things could change, and if they began to do it, have no doubt it would have a huge impact on neighboring countries as well. England to start with, and possibly Ireland too. So Scottish independence is not just important for the Scottish people, it's important for the English people too. That the breakup of the United Kingdom, as my friend Tom Nairn called it in a prescient book he wrote, three decades ago will benefit people who live in the south as well and maybe help them get rid of the undemocratic structures which dominate their lives, starting with the first-past-the-post system, which is a corrupt system. It's not democratic. It doesn't reflect what people are feeling at the time of the election. 
mean the last Labour government was elected on 22% of the electorate. 22%. So at a time when democracy itself is being hollowed out, and it's being hollowed out because no party which challenges the economic priorities of global capitalism is to be allowed to come anywhere close to power. So you have what I have described as an extreme center that governs virtually every advanced Western country today. An extreme center which includes center left and center right, which goes and makes wars when the United States needs them, which imposes austerity measures against its own people, which tries to virtually wipe out dissent, which punishes whistleblowers, and which now tells us that everything we do is under surveillance, and a good thing too. The NSA and the GCHQ. So in this world, what is the future? It's It's a gloomy future unless attempts are made to change it. And independent Scotland will create new open political spaces in in England as well. I have no doubt of it. And people will think, are we going to be punished now on our own without the Scots' company? Or should we begin to do something? Create new broad-based organizations, new social movements to defend ourselves. I think that will be the impact. You will not have, you already have sort of slightly nutty uh, far-right parties like uh, UKIP and uh, their friends on the, you know, further on the right, but they are, you know, wreaking havoc within the ranks of conservatism and on its fringes. They already exist. They're not going to get any larger, but we might get something better if people see that it's possible by acting yourselves, as the Scots have done, to do it. Which is why I think that this Scottish referendum is probably the most important political event in the history of these islands, certainly since the Second World War. And it's, uh, I urge you to participate in the campaign and not be fed up just because this existing SNP government hasn't done everything possible. It's not totally related to that. It's on a much, much higher level than what can be done in the Scottish Parliament today under the existing system. You have to rise above that and see what can be done for Scotland as a whole and what forces it will open up. And I'm always annoyed when they say, but small countries will always have to depend on larger countries. Well, on some things, yes, but not in terms, for instance, of relations with foreign countries. Perfectly possible for Scotland to have very close relations with Ecuador, a small country in South America which is broken with neoliberalism, also has an oil industry, or Venezuela, or Bolivia, And why not China and Japan either? Why should Scotland not? Why should everything be mediated through the central bureaucracy of the United Kingdom in London? 
which bureaucracy does not act in Scottish interests, as we have seen over the last 20, 30 years. So it's a big leap, but I think it's a leap, leap that should be made. And it's, it, its importance should not be underestimated. In my opinion, even if the vote is close, it's a huge leap forward. Even if the yes vote loses by a tiny margin, it's still a leap forward because it will be reviving the energy of the people of this country. And you know how ironic that the first Labour Prime Minister produced, uh, who was a, a Scots, I was reading <coughs> uh, before coming here, a wonderful piece by uh, Lewis Grasse Gibbon on Ramsay MacDonald. And he describes this best. In the 1923 general election, Ramsay Mac afterwards, Ramsay MacDonald was summoned to Buckingham Palace. He emerged from it the first Labour Premier. Labour burst into loud peans. They were mistimed. Earnest colliers, poring over their daily herald, learned astounded of the inclusion of the good and conservative Lord Chelmsford in the Cabinet. <laughs> There were other astonishing personalities, too. In the Labour speech from the throne, a vague Niagara of bubbling sonorosities, nothing of any moment was promised. This was but just anticipation. Nothing was done. The merciful knight engaged in nine months elaborate skirmishing with the Liberals, the radical, undignified, uneasy liberals pressing him forward to all kinds and manners of dangerous experiments with the economic structure of our island. Mr. MacDonald fought them back at every point. He would consent to the clipping of not a single claw on the Stegosaurus's hooves. Dazed conservatives realized that here was the most conservative government since Lord Salisbury's. <laughs> and then, listen to this, just showing how history echoes and repeats itself. Under MacDonald, obstreperous Mesopotamians were bombed with great thoroughness by orders of the Undersecretary for Air, the personal friend of the Premier, the pacifist Mr. Leach. The Communists, much the same collection of irreligious, vigorous, blasphemous cockneys as Mr. MacDonald had turned from in a fray discussed in the 1890s, began to prove quite as obstreperous as the Mesopotamians. Unfortunately, they could not be bombed and so on and so forth. And reading this, I was remembering the war in Iraq, which finally finished Blair off, and the impact that had, that we had, in fact, moved forward from the time of MacDonald, who was the first Labour prime minister. And so there was a lot of leeway. He's a minority government, let him get on with it. And then you got Attlee in 1945, and that was that. And then came new Labour, a scourge on the land. 
and did what they did. And Blair couldn't understand that the opposition to this war was one of the most deeply felt things in Scotland and in England. That the huge demonstrations that took place could be manipulated, could be spun out of existence by clever spin doctory by Alastair Campbell or one of the other jokers who functioned. And he couldn't understand that. And that is why he is still hated to this day. And that went very deep, that hatred. So much so that when his awful memoirs came out, activists all over the country used to go into bookshops and put them from the bio- biography sections into the crime section. <laughs> So there was anger. And now we're approaching, you know, we are months away from a time when this anger has to be canalized, I think. And a break has to be made with all the corruption that has emanated over the last 30 years. If Scotland does it, and I very sincerely hope that it will, everyone will be thankful to you. Not just here, but in England as well, and who knows in which other parts of Europe where they are going to be watching the results very closely. To conclude, the notion which was accepted that if you joined the European Union all would be well is no longer active. You can't believe that anymore. Whether you should join or not is a tactical issue. Perhaps it's necessary to do so. I don't know. I'm not 100% convinced. Because the Europe that was created and expanded is now in a big mess. You just have to look at what is happening in Greece. There's a general strike every fourth month. You look at what is happening in Italy. Total crisis. Unappointed bankers appointed to head government, uh, unelected bankers appointed to head governments. You look in Spain, 50% of the kids are out of work and unemployed. You look at Ireland, where the cabinet meets, and so scared of the Troika that when some minister says, uh, we've got a request here for a few million for the Arts Council and for culture, and they all vote in favor of it, and suddenly another minister stands up and says, but hang on, shouldn't we get permission from the Troika first? Oh, yes, we should. So someone sent out to make a phone call to Brussels, can we vote this through? And this is, this is a, a, a huge crisis for Europe. Whether it will come out of it in one piece or two, we don't know. And all these things have to be openly discussed. You know, when you read the newspapers today, you don't get an idea, unless you read between the lines of the Financial Times, how severe the crisis is. So all this, all this has to be taken into account when the votes are cast, but ultimately it will depend on all of you. Either you get off your backsides and go and campaign and get people and convince people to come out and vote, or don't blame anyone else if it doesn't happen. If I were here, I'd do it with you, and I will do whatever I can, and many other internationalists on these islands who are also for Scottish independence as internationalists, because I think it will increase, it will improve internationalist fervor on these lands once this breach is made. So if that happens, 
great. It's up to you. Thank you very much, Tarek. Um, we do have some time for questions and contributions. Unfortunately, or fortunately in some respects, Tarek has another lecture tonight to get to in Glasgow. Like, boo, West Coast. Like, <laughs> but um, we will have... What I'll do, I'll take people in threes if you could keep your contributions short uh, so that like as many people as possible get a chance to speak. And then Tarek will uh, be briefly come back on the points, OK? Yourself there. Uh, Where is stand up, please? Speak up a bit if you could. Would you care to comment on the currency issue? Positive money has an interesting theory, um, which I think is true. I believe that yeah. the current system redistributes money from the bottom ninety percent to the top ten percent. Okay. We got here. Yeah. I'm not trying to be controversial, but I mean, I would like to hear some views on what the position of the SNP is. I think the SNP is a fashionable party. I didn't hear the question. Could you he, said, repeat? he said that the SNP is a fascist party. The SNP is a fascist party. Okay. Um, controversial views there? This man here, sorry. There's three issues there. Um, there's uh, the currency, the fascism question, and social media. Tarek, do you care to comment? Yeah. Um, I think the currency issue is quite important. Uh, and here I think that the blackmail, which is coming from London, you know, day after day, week after week, it, it, doesn't, it didn't work. The first time Osborne spoke, I noticed that the support for independence went up by two points that fortnight. <laughs> Uh, so they're now changing. They're thinking of offering some vague concessions, you know, a bit more gold maybe from the uh, uh, tax on airports could come directly to Scotland on, on airline tickets, etc., etc. Trying to bribe, cajole, at the same time threaten. In my opinion, it's bluff. I think that once Scotland votes for independence, the Bank of England will realize that trying to punish Scotland uh, is going to backfire on itself. But the bluff should be called. I don't think the SNP, which is the main force uh, uh, in this debate here, uh, should be too shy about saying that if you decide to do that, then, you know, we will be left with no alternative and we will immediately create a Bank of Scotland and issue currency banknotes in the name of Scotland and decide democratically whether we're going to tie it, which currency we're going, going to tie it to, to, either yours or maybe we can go with the Scandinavians or the European Union. All these things can be discussed, but it's a question of which country you tie it to. The sterling isn't tied to the euro. 
uh, at the moment, and which is the advantage of it at this present moment in time. But I don't think the bluff should be... They sh- the SNP shouldn't allow this particular bluff to create an atmosphere of fear. They have to come out with very clear answers. Um, Okay, we'll we'll, we'll let you ask a question in a second. Okay. Uh, As for the SNP being a fascist party, well, I mean, basically or effectively, you're saying that Scotland's gone fascist by voting for it. And I don't see too many fascists here. But in any case... But in any case, it's wrong in fact and it's wrong theoretically. The fascists are a very distinct breed. They have clear-cut programs. Uh, We know this because we know they've had a past. And uh, ultranationalism, even ultranationalism of the most absurd variety can't be equated with fascism. It has its own weaknesses. Fascism is a very particular type of party which is usually comes into action to prevent a country or a situation from getting too radical and is obvious and is often used by the people who own wealth in a country to become an extra parliamentary force on their side. This is what the Italian and German fascists did. The fascist groups that are active in Europe today claimed, I mean, you know, the um, uh, group in Italy, which served in Berlusconi's government under its leader, Fini, and was in direct lineal descent from Mussolini's party, even they have abandoned the old creed. They claim, cling on to some of it, but by and large, they've abandoned it. But you do have this phenomenon of far-right parties in Europe, which basically campaign usually on one issue, If in the 20s and 30s and 40s it was the Jews, in large parts of Europe today there is a very vile form of Islamophobia. And often the arguments they use against Muslims are virtually the same as the ones, I did a study on this many years ago, uh, are virtually the same as the arguments that were used against the Jews. It's the other, they are different, they have their own day of worship, they eat halal meat, they wear funny things on their heads, they wear funny clothes, they are not us. You listen to Germans, Dutch, French talking, and it becomes immediately a civilizational issue. They're not part of our civilization. Look however much you may dislike the SNP, it has absolutely nothing to do with all that. Mm. Social media. Social media. Um, I agree. Social media has a very important role to play. Social media these days can sometimes activate people, uh, younger people in particular, and bring them out. We've seen this in country after country. And obviously, I'm sure everyone uh, voting yes will be know the importance of this and will be working on it, as will be the other side, by the way. 
So it's the political message that counts, not the actual means of communication. We've just got to be better at it than the than the other side. Um, what is the, what's the fourth one? No. We didn't have a fourth one. Okay. Right, we'll go. We'll move on to my question. Take you here. Yeah. yeah. Uh, my question is: in a, in a in a world where ten percent of the population is controlling eighty-five percent of the assets, where one thousand three hundred and eighteen companies control eighty percent of the global wealth. How does a tiny country like Scotland, if it were to go independent, actually begin to bust this neoliberalism epidemic that is taking over the world? Okay. Yeah, uh, well, um, George Galloway came to change my cold uh, Nicholas Sturgeon, Thatcher in a kilt. And remote on reality of that. And I, I think that what we're really talking about now. I think that question that was just posed about what do we do? Well, let's hold the SNP to the renationalisation of the post office. Let's take the oil out of control. Now, the question about control, I used to work for a nationalised industry called SSDB, right, which was privatised. I never felt it was workers' control. I was never fooled. So we're not going to wrap nationalism in any kind of red flag. That's why we need to also talk about unity against neoliberalism. From people in the no camp and people in the yes camp. We cannot become like brothers fighting in a field and like some civil war. We are an armed campaigning for a yes. But the question that you have to pose is that you cannot replace UK or world austerity with some kind of Scottish austerity. That's not what we're fighting for. We want a better world, a different world. That's why we're radical, and that's why we fight on in the schemes and in the workplaces between now and September to say, beyond September, we want a different kind of world. And we bring everybody to that flag and not to some kind of tattered flag. Okay. Um, <laughs> if we keep contributions short, maybe to questions. I've got someone over here. <laughs> To answer the, the, the first question, how can a tiny country like Scotland resist all this? Well, look, other countries in other continents, as tiny or li- maybe a bit larger, have resisted it. And it depends on your political leadership, the people you elect, and how active you are in keeping them to their promises. The reason uh, they don't talk about South America so much is because all these governments that came to power came to power promising change from neoliberalism, promising uh, health education systems that were free, promising to give indigenous people the rights that they had been denied forever in that part of the world. And they won in country after country, in four countries, and they began to carry out their programs and actually achieved at least half of them. 
And that meant that the next time there was an election, their vote went up and up because people said, okay, we can't have it all in one go, but we are going to have it sooner or later. There's absolutely no reason why that shouldn't be, that shouldn't be done here. I mean, effectively, South America produced social movements resisting neoliberalism from the word go. The tragedy is that that didn't happen in Europe. It didn't happen in this country because Thatcher had inflicted a crushing defeat on the miners' union, National Union of Mine Workers, who were proved to be totally right in what they said was going to happen, that it was a fight for their livelihoods and their jobs. And she crushed them. And that more or less crushed the trade union movement. It's not that you didn't have strikes, but in terms of the country as a whole, the defeat inflicted on the mine workers was a huge political defeat on this country. And it's never recovered and come out from that. So it can be done. <clears throat> um, now, look, this, you know, I, I obviously I agree that we maintain the struggle against neoliberalism and its evils. That's what they are, what they do, that everything is for profit, and we build the broadest possible alliance for that. The point I was making was that it will become easier to do this once Scotland becomes independent. Then this particular question is resolved Hopefully, hopefully for all time. And then we can begin, or begin even now, but that questions and the resolution of it is important. It's as I said earlier in my talk, what you put in Scottish space then becomes absolutely vital. And that, in other words, there is everything to look forward to and play for and struggle for once that is achieved. Um, the white paper... I wouldn't be skeptical about it. I wouldn't even be skeptical about the negotiating team which goes in. If that will happen once, if the yes vote wins, and if they win, I think that in itself will bring about a huge change in political and mass consciousness in Scotland. It will be a huge event and will push the leaders elected to negotiate with a position of strength. My own advice would be that the, mi the minute independence is won, that there should be something like popular conventions in all these cities and a national convention in Scotland to keep people on the track. In other words, we should do what has been discussed many a time before, is have mass mobilizations you know, however they are done, uh, just recently in a huge struggle in Bosnia against neoliberalism, by the way, the Bosnians got rid of elected mayors in towns by having what they call plenums. The whole village or the whole small town used to gather and say, you've been corrupted, you've been working for X, Y, and Z, we want you out, and the mayors resigned. They didn't even resist. So a lot depends on how citizens exercise their democratic rights. That will be absolutely crucial. And if that begins to happen after independence, then I think the, the, the people who negotiate with the uh, government in London will feel strengthened and not enfeebled. So one, you know, it, it depends on you. We've got about ten more minutes, so uh, please keep your questions short. Okay. Hi, good afternoon. 
Um, you spoke a little bit about uh, the consequences for England, but I'd be curious what your thoughts would be for the remaining uh, British territories, the UK overseas territories, as well as situations like Quebec and uh, Catalonia. Just comment, because of um, I was just trying to understand why your, your position on the uh, access of Scotland in the EU. I feel like uh, the role of Scotland that it could play in the EU as uh, separated from England uh, fits perfectly in your views of fighting for social justice and against neoliberalism. So why are you not convinced that uh, Scotland should play that kind of role in the EU? Oh, um, you said that Scotland has a chance to play a role model. And that reminds me of Cuba when I was there. I saw how the neoliberal actors tried to let the country suffer and show that it can't work. What kind of measurements by the neoliberal actors, I'm talking all of them, institutions and you know, private companies, can you think of financially, politically, to let Scotland suffer because Scotland is not that America is Europe? Uh, okay. Uh, the consequences for other parts of the United Kingdom if Scotland goes becomes free. Uh, it will depend on them, of course, but the key issue will be Northern Ireland, obviously. <clears throat> In Wales, it depends on the people of Wales who they elect. Uh, and who the, what they want to to fight for, but I think the key issue will be Northern Ireland, and here there are two choices. One is, of course, they could go independent if they so desire, but I doubt that that will be a simple solution. And the other is the big divide: whether sooner or later the Northern Irish population, Catholic and hopefully sections of the Protestants, will decide that it might work better for them were they to unite with the Irish Republic and end this historic divide. If they do, well and good. If they don't, well, it's I'm not in favor and never have been a forced solution in this case. It has to have a support of the majority of people in Northern Ireland, and one assumes that they too might demand at some stage their own referendum, and then we will see how that works out. Um, Scotland in the EU if it goes in the EU yeah sure it can fight from within there I'm not opposed to the EU I'm just saying that the way in which the EU is constructed is A incredibly undemocratic that the European Parliament has no real powers at all it's just a talking shop secondly that all the key decisions are taken by the three big powers uh, the Germans, the French and to a certain extent the British uh, the others have been, you know, they're sort of bullied to come along. And in the crisis, it's been the German banks which have been playing the key role, especially in relation to Greece. So the question for me is, can the EU be democratized? And I think it could be if the smaller states decided to break with neoliberal orthodoxy. Either they'll be expelled or they'll be... Uh, uh, they, they might have to create something new. And there's talk, serious talk, in Berlin, by the way, behind the scenes of remodeling the EU and having a two-tier structure. 
So you have the top four, top four or five at the table who make the decisions, and the others are treated as dependents. <laughs> and if that is going to become the case, then it's useless for everyone. Also, when they turn their back, the EU bankers and the politicians in hock to them, when they turn their back on the social Europe, which was the initial proposal coming from Delors uh, and the French, that the function at Eastern Europe can only, uh, that Europe can only function properly if it is also a social Europe, that's never seen the light of day. And that is certainly worth fighting for. Uh, so I'm not opposed to Scottish entry in the EU, provided you know one goes in with one's eyes open, knowing exactly what it is. Um, what was the ah, Scotland as a role model. No, I wasn't really thinking about Cuba. I promise you that. <laughs> I was just thinking that if a country newly independent, newly enfranchised with a bulk of its population. I mean, you know, it's not an accident that (coughs) support for independence is strongest amongst working people because they they know what's been happening to them for the last 30 years. I mean, the campaign for an independent Scotland isn't exactly a yuppie campaign. I mean, they've benefited a bit, and they're all now in the Labour Party. Uh, the role model I was thinking of really was more of a small new state energetic which breaks with neoliberalism which lays down certain guidelines in terms of the basic needs of the people and that these needs should be satisfied before there is any talk of profit. It's a very moderate demand, but a moderate demand which in today's situation could have a much, much bigger impact. That's all. We're going to have to take a few other people, I'm sorry. Andy, Uh, speak up, please. So you've talked quite a lot about what kind of examples we can take internationally once we get independent. Do you have any thoughts on uh, protest movements from around the world? Are there any campaigns from around the world that have tried a certain tactic or strategy um, in their campaign, either for independence or for some sort of social justice issue, um, that you think we should adopt in a campaign for independence? So between now and September. Um. Yeah, um, I agree with what Tarek just said about how um, it's amongst the ordinary working class people in Scotland uh, where the support for independence is strongest. And I also agree that it isn't any accident in terms of how you've outlined it. But one other place where support for independence has been growing in, um, in Scotland, and that is also amongst ethnic minorities. And again, I don't think it's particularly accidental. And what you said earlier on about how the kind of sort of um, ideas about independence that are being proposed to this character leader, to us as a current generation, are so different from previous generations because it is very much about being inclusive. It is saying that you know it doesn't matter where you're cut, where you're from, where you were born, what language you speak, what religion you have, you can be included in this. And that's why I think it is also quite important that you know the ideas that have been pushed in both the Radical Independence Co- uh, Convention and by uh, by people you know sort of like more generally on the left in terms of socialist has been precisely about trying to shape the kind of independence that, that we're going to have. So I think it is quite important that we do say between now and the referendum that yes, you know, we are talking about, I mean for me personally, I'd want to see the banks nationalised here. Um, I think that should be one of our demands to nationalise <laughs>
nationalise the oil with no compensation, right. to nationalise the utilities, um, you know, and as well as integrating some at the heart of it, because that's what's going to make it much easier for the space that we have after independence, I think, uh, for us to be able to really shape the kind of Scotland that we want. Uh, so I think, it, you know, the two are not disconnected in that sense. Okay, I'm going to take only one more, I'm afraid. Uh, if you're interested in the ideas, these lectures will be uploaded, both of them, the Glasgow one as well, uploaded to YouTube, which you'll find from the Radical Independence website. Also, Tarlochin, could you put your hand up there? Hello, there he is. Uh, he has uh, Tarek Ali's books, which are available for purchase, uh, and my book also, but you don't need to buy that. <laughs> <laughs> right, yourself at the front. What do you think about the proposed 3%? decreasing corporation tax and also retaining the monarchy. <laughs> 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 what do I think about 3%? Uh, want to cut the corporation tax and retain the monarchy. Okay. Okay. Well, look, uh, let me discuss that uh, first. I'm not in favour of either. <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of other things, too, we will debate and discuss and fight about and they should, you know, obviously they should be raised now and have no problems with that. But the key decision that is to be made is a decision in September. That is what I want to stress to you, that all this will be pie in the sky if we fail. So, uh, I mean, you know, we can then discuss to till kingdom come, whatever you want to. But th uh, it's one has got to understand that 10, 15 issues which we raise are fine. But what is the key issue? To isolate that issue and to go for it, and that is the vote. And how to maximize, uh, how to maximize that vote. Um, have I missed out anything? Ah, the, uh, from the back. The, what can we learn from other parts of the world where people have been campaigning? Well, you know, there's no, there's no campaign similar to this um, elsewhere. But what I think is required, I'll tell you one campaign which occurs to me, that when the French campaign against the new European constitution was waged, the reason they waged it was not through chauvinism or nationalism. They said that there's a clause in the European constitution which says, actually says in the Constitution that the economic model is neoliberalism. They, of course, expressed it in a, in a more obfuscatory way, but that is what they want. And the French said, no, we're not going to accept that. And they had meetings in every single town and village in France, big and small, public meetings which they called to explain the argument. They had the entire French media, I exaggerate not, the entire French media, the television networks, the print media, the politicians of all the parties against them, but they won. And they won because they had actually read the Constitution and knew what was in it, unlike the politicians who had signed up for it. And so it, that is not a, you know, I assume this is happening in any case by the Yes campaign. To, and also I would suggest another thing would be to have debates. 
challenge the no campaign to debates, public debates to raise political consciousness. What? They won't put people up against us. They're scared. They won't be want people. Yeah. Well, um, I yeah. Okay. Well. In that case, uh, find actors to mouth their I think I've I've covered it all. Yes. Yes. Okay. A huge round of applause. <laughs>